We are now going to read the Bible. So today's Bible reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. And this can be found in uh, page 684 in your pew Bibles. So that's page 1684, starting chapter 5, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, thanks, Alicia. Can I ask you please to take out the handout that you were given as you came in? You'll see on the inside, um, as usual, a reasonably detailed outline of what I'm going to cover. You'll see the whole of the Bible reading has been printed. It's the part that's in italics there uh, in separate stages. So if you have that in front of you, that will save you having to juggle the Bible open as well. Well, we've come to the end of this delightful letter um, and the series overview on the top left of your handout, it kind of retells the lovely story of the Thessalonian church, uh, established by the Apostle Paul around AD 50, uh, although he had to flee after only three weeks because of anti-Christian opposition. Nevertheless, he can say that his time with them was not without results because their faith had become known everywhere as they stood firm in the Lord. In chapters 4 and 5, this last section, Paul has been focusing on how to live in order to please God, uh, to be sanctified, to love all God's family, to get informed about death, so that we do grieve, but not without hope. And what's been wonderful as we've gone along is that we've seen that the Thessalonians were encouraging one another and they were building each other up as we wait for Christ's return. Well, we come to the final verses, and you might have noticed there was a heading in your Bible in the NIV. It said, Final Instructions. Uh, in many ways, I think that's probably quite accurate. Uh, what Paul says in this last section, it falls nicely into two parts about their life together as a church family. Uh, firstly, how we treat each other, and secondly, how we treat God. How we treat each other and how we treat God. And if you know that sounds eerily familiar something about the vertical and the horizontal, well, what can I say? The Apostle Paul is always consistent. So let's have a look then. Point one on your handout, how we treat each other. How we treat each other, verses 12 through 15. What immediately stands out is the beautiful picture here of a Christian family in action. 
uh, its members treating each other with love and care and concern. In fact, Paul gives no fewer than eight practical suggestions for the Thessalonians. And you can see that from the layout on your leaflet. So let me read it for you there. It's the left-hand side, verses 12 through 15. Eight different instructions. Uh, Verse 12, we ask you, brothers and sisters, one, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Two, live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, three, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Four, encourage the disheartened. Five, help the weak. Six, be patient with everyone. Seven, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Eight, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Okay, eight descriptions of how we're to treat each other in God's family. And of course, any one of those I could devote an entire sermon to. Uh, Take, for example, the last one. The last one. Always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. It's noticeable, isn't it? Paul doesn't say, strive to do what's good for yourself. That's the mantra of our age. Look after yourself. He doesn't say that because that kind of attitude and priority would inevitably limit or hinder our ability to love others. For the sake of time, let me just comment briefly on the very first one he gives, first instruction, because here he does give some rationale. Uh, Verse 12, uh, acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Uh, Paul says here, not just to acknowledge our leaders, but to hold them in the highest regard in love. That's a high bar, isn't it? It's possible that what Paul is doing is telling the Thessalonians to honour their church leaders because he knows that they're anxious about the fact that he's never been back to visit them. And maybe he doesn't want them ever to become overly dependent on him either. But he says to them, hold your leaders in the highest regard. And he says that's even when we disagree with them or, did you notice even when they admonish us, even when they rebuke us. Now, I know we don't always agree with every decision that church leaders make. Maybe that's why verse 13 immediately continues, live in peace with each other. Now, don't mishear me. I'm certainly not suggesting that staff are beyond reproach in a church. It's one of the reasons why, throughout the year, I regularly say from the front that our church holds our staff to high standards of conduct. Uh, And so, if you ever have any serious concerns about their behaviour, there are systems in place that are transparent and accessible. And there's details there on the handout towards our website. But for now, on behalf of the pastoral staff in particular... And I take this opportunity to thank you for the gracious and generous esteem with which you hold us. Uh, That includes your financial generosity so that the staff don't have to work other jobs but are able to devote themselves fully to equipping all of God's people for works of service. Well, in these verses here, 12 through 15, Paul paints an incredibly expansive vision for life in a Christian community, how they ought to treat each other. 
And it's so magnificent, I think, that it would have been appealing to outsiders. In fact, do you recall we heard earlier in the letter how the faith of the Thessalonians had become known everywhere? As the Lord's message rang out from them through all Macedonia and Achaia. They were actually doing pretty well at this. And so Paul encourages them, just keep what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. You'll see on the screen behind me on the slide some of the references along the way from the letter. From chapter 5, verse 1, verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Uh, chapter 4, verse 10, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, so we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. Or chapter 4, verse 1, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. I'll stop and talk about application for just a moment. It strikes me that often here in church, I'm talking to you about the great ways to get involved in our church, to reach the lost, to welcome newcomers, to make disciples. And I think that it's right that we do so. Because we have the amazing privilege of belonging to the greatest global enterprise the world has ever seen. One that we know will succeed because it's led by the risen Lord Jesus. So why would anyone want to miss out? At the same time, since that task is unfinished, it's been a work in progress for nearly 2,000 years, I think it's okay for us to sometimes put down our activism and just pause and thank God for the many ways we see these eight descriptions of love in action in our church family. You know, one of the best parts of my job is that I get to hear more of those stories than anybody else. And that's why I think actually one of the things that I ought to do is share them with you. I mean, who doesn't love being the bearer of good news? Well, despite my great thankfulness for our church family, I'm not for a moment pretending that we're perfect in the way in which we treat each other or that we get it right every time. So raise the question, what happens when we fail? What happens when we don't live up to this wonderful aspirational picture that Paul has painted? Do we give up? Say, it's all too hard. Or what about when others fail to treat us this way and we suffer at their hands? Do we retreat out of self-protection so we don't get burnt again? Well... Hold that thought for a moment. We'll return to it. Let's come to the second thing that Paul says about how our church family ought to operate. Firstly, how to treat each other. Secondly, point two there on your handout, how to treat God, verses 16 through 22. Now, Paul has just given eight instructions on how to treat each other. He now adds seven instructions about how to treat God. Look with me, verses 16 through 22, bottom left of your handout. One, rejoice always. Two, pray continually. Three, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Four, do not quench the spirit. Five, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Six, hold on to what is good. Seven, reject every kind of evil. Seven ways in which we're to treat God. So, what do we make of this? Well, actually this time they fall neatly, I think, into two categories. Uh, the first Three are expressed positively, that is, what we are to do. The next four are expressed negatively, what we are to avoid. 
And uh, let me talk about each of them. You'll see the headings there on your handout. Firstly, what to do. Verses 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, These first three instructions, in many ways, they are a, a lovely summary of the entire Christian life. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. And I guess what stands out immediately is the adverbs. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, You get the picture. Paul is saying rejoice, pray, give thanks all the time, no matter what, come what may. Paul says to rejoice, pray, give thanks, however you're feeling, in good times and bad, irrespective of what others do or don't do. Verse 16, I think, in many ways, is a perfect memory verse for us. Um, Perfect for a new convert who is just starting out in the Christian life as well as for a follower who has served Jesus for decades, perhaps is nearing home, maybe even wavering. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. As I said, I think it's a perfect memory verse. Actually, uh, I tried memorising this week. It's not very hard, this one. You know I love memory verses, and I haven't inflicted many on you in this series. Um, But this one's not too hard. It's always risky. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Well, uh, I hear you say, Jeff, that's great, that's easy to remember, it's hard to put into practice. It is. All of us know that our circumstances can be very difficult at times. All of us have experienced hardship, sickness, suffering, or sadness. All of us have experienced drudgery, disappointment. Or despair. When we do, normally what happens is that we'll either we try to double down and work harder to find the solution ourselves, or we try and pin the blame on others, or we give up and wander away. So, what will motivate us to want to live out verse 16? Well, actually, Paul's answer comes in the very next verse. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying is that what God wants for us is to be prayerful, joyful and thankful to him for who he is and how he loves us. This is what God would have us do. And I think Paul, in a not very subtle way, is reminding us of 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 uh, that we saw a few weeks ago, printed there on your handout. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. God is reshaping us and refining our character and our convictions so that whatever our circumstances are, we continue to look to Him. It seems to me if that's what God wants... If that's what God's will is, that's a bit more promising. That's a reason to persevere and persist, 
even when it's very hard. You know, Christians spend a lot of time trying to discover God's will in a particular situation. What Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 5 is that God's will is largely independent of your specific circumstances. Because he says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. That is, do those things no matter what. The lovely thing is that if you're committed to that, it means you don't need to worry if you've chosen the right path, the right course of action. Not if you're seeking to conform to his good, pleasing and perfect will. Okay, so the first part of this section is on how to treat God, uh, is what to do. The second part is what not to do. Uh, Pick it up with me in verses 19 through 22. Uh, Verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians 5, bottom left of your handout. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I'll start with verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Um, Remember how God gave us his spirit to enable us to do his will so we might live in order to please him? Uh, We saw that back in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 7 and 8. It's there on the right-hand side of your handout. Uh, No wonder then that Paul will say here in verse 19, don't quench the Spirit, because presumably we do well to make use of the tools and the resources that God gives us to do His will. Uh, Do not quench the Spirit. Uh, That word quench, it's so evocative, isn't it? Uh, Makes me think of the Spirit as being something that's powerful and active, like fire or a source of energy. And so it would be pretty foolish to douse it or put it out or to neglect neglect him in any way. Now, of course, if you're wondering what does it actually mean to quench the spirit, well, uh, let me acknowledge it's not entirely clear. Uh, This is the only reference in the New Testament to the phrase. Uh, And if Paul doesn't further explain it, I presume it's because the Thessalonians knew what he was talking about. For me, I suspect it means not ignoring the work of the Spirit, which is always to highlight the work of Christ as revealed in God's powerful Word. We saw that actually back in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. There in your handout, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, Paul started the letter by saying, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. What is clear in the New Testament, time and time again, is that the work of the Spirit is to point us towards the work of Christ, and we see that in the Word of God. Well, um, it is a little bit controversial, verse 20, so I I should comment about it. Verse 20, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Uh, What are the prophecies that uh, we're not to be contemptuous of? There's a couple of possibilities here. Uh, One is that Paul is referring to prophetic utterances about the future. Prophetic utterances about the future. We see these sometimes in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, The prophet Agabus makes a prediction about a famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. Uh, Or he predicts that Paul will be arrested when he goes to Jerusalem. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that when he talks of prophecies, he's speaking of 
God-given special insights into Scripture. God-given special insights into Scripture. Uh, Once again, though, it's not clear. Um, But I guess what I want to say today is that whatever it was back then, I think that Acts was a unique time in history where God worked in a unique way. So I don't think we have prophets today, just as I don't think we have apostles today. The main reason for that is because, actually, unlike back then, we do have the New Testament. So we don't actually need apostles and prophets the way in which the early church did. As I said, that's my view. Others might disagree. But here's the point. Whatever Paul is talking about, he goes on to insist that our response is not to immediately disagree with prophecies, it's to test them all. It's to test them all. And that's actually what we're meant to do with everything that we hear or see. We are to test it against the Word of God. We are to be like the Bereans, as I often say, and there's reference there to Acts 17, um, to test everything against Scripture. Well, once again, Paul is painting a lovely picture of how all of us are to treat God. He's saying that we're to listen to him speak as he discloses his will for our lives in his word. And that leads to a joyfulness, a prayerfulness and a thankfulness in all circumstances that we can delight in. And yet, once again, the question from before still lingers. What happens when we fail? What happens when we fail? Because if we're being honest, we know we all do. In fact, it's an impossibly high standard to aspire to. We all know how terrible we are at achieving it. So what do we do when we don't treat God the way in which we ought, when we can't keep his will, when we can't live in order to please him? So, point three then, what happens when we fail? What happens when we fail? Let me try to answer that with what's going to seem at first to be like a bit of a detour. What I'd like us to do for a few moments is to reflect on what I think is one of the biggest problems facing Christians today. It's the problem of moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism, which you can see on your handout there. I've printed for you. Let me try and explain what this is. I'll read this short quote. Moralistic therapeutic deism is belief in a distant creator who desires humans to be nice and fair to one another and who intervenes in human experience only when called on to bestow blessings or resolve problems. The purpose of life is happiness, self-fulfillment and a degree of goodness sufficient for entrance to heaven. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, Well, moralistic in that it's basically a call to be nice, to do good things. And uh, I have to admit that even me listing those 15 final instructions, it sort of feels moralistic, doesn't it? It feels like a checklist that you have to keep to earn God's favour. Of course, one of the problems with moralism is that 
for Christians, what happens when we see morals shift in our broader society? Because it's tempting to follow them, not follow Christ. Moralistic, therapeutic, therapeutic. Uh, What this is saying is that, in this view, God is really just a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. God is basically just on call, waiting to supply all the things that will make our lives better. You might think of God as being like a genie in a bottle. Again, of course, the challenge comes when we don't appear to get what we want or when we're asked to make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. How could that possibly fit within this view of what God would want me to do? And deism, deism is the idea that God is actually remote. He's removed from us. And that Christianity is just all about obedience to rules and regulations. Of course, the danger with that is that without a personal relationship to a living God, Christianity will be no more than a bunch of commands you're required to keep. It will never be about trusting someone, even when you don't have all the answers. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Well, what do you think? Do you think that that's a fair characterization of Western Christianity? Or more provocatively, let me ask, do you think, are we at risk? How would you know? Well, here's a hint. Can I ask you, do you feel closer to God when you have done a good thing and further away from Him when you have sinned? If so, then be aware. Uh, Because, in my view at least, even allowing for the role of conscience, so conscience is a thing that God gives us to help us know when we've actually wandered away from Him. It's a good thing that gives us, the problem of course with conscience, is that in almost every person's case, your conscience lurches between being overly sensitive or callously indifferent. But beware, because I think moralistic therapeutic deism, it is endemic in Christian circles. I think that because secretly all of us want to believe that our destiny is in our own hands and that we don't need rescuing. And moralistic therapeutic deism, it conveniently removes any reason for us to have to acknowledge our sin or admit our fault or need to repent. And yet, as I said, throughout this last part of 1 Thessalonians, if we're being honest and we admit it, we know we can't keep all of those instructions about how to treat each other and how to treat God. So what hope is there? Well, this is where we come to verses 23 and 24. Because Paul's response is a brilliant and wonderful and liberating answer in every way. In verses 23 and 24, Paul is going to talk about the very good news of God's grace, what He does for us, not what we must try to do for Him. What He does for us, not what we must try to do for Him. Look at me, verses 23 and 24, on the right-hand side of your handout. 
May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Do you notice how Paul concludes this letter? He has two prayers to God for God to act, followed by one great assurance for all of us that he will. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the assurance, verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. I want to say today, there is a massive difference between asking, what must I do to appease a holy God? And how do I live in order to please Him who promises He's going to finish His sanctifying work in me anyway? There is a massive difference between trying to appease a judge and trying to please our Father. Between trying to keep a checklist of commands so you stay out of trouble and eagerly desiring to do the good works which he has prepared in advance for us to do joyfully, thankfully and prayerfully. We live in a meritocracy. We live in a world where we are constantly valued according to our contribution. So this is completely countercultural. But it is also a wonderful relief to hear our Heavenly Father doesn't demand perfection, He simply desires contrition. He doesn't demand perfection, He simply desires contrition. We know that because He loves us enough to give us His Son to atone for our sins and He gives us His Spirit to make us holy in every way. So where Paul is going to finish this letter is with a reminder of God's grace. Because this is the antidote to moralistic therapeutic deism. And actually, it's why, even though that heading in the Bible, in the Bibles that you've got said, final instructions, I actually think it's not the best heading. The better heading, I think, would have been, although I'll grant you it's a little bit cumbersome, would be final responses to our Heavenly Father's amazing grace and mercy. So actually, what I think we ought to do as a church family at this point is, together, say a confession to God, to our Heavenly Father. The one that's going to come up on screen behind me is one that's been chosen for today because, like we've seen in 1 Thessalonians 5, it's in two parts. The first part is about our failure to treat others, but it's also about our failure to treat God, our Heavenly Father, in the way in which He deserves. And in praying this prayer of confession we're acknowledging that we can't pretend to be good enough we just confess hear his forgiveness and ask him to work in us by his spirit to transform us more each day so will you join me in saying this prayer together together almighty god our heavenly father we confess with shame the sins we have done against you and against those whom you have made. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbours as ourselves. We are sorry and turn from our sins. 
For the sake of your Son, who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. Set us free by your Spirit to live for you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear these great words of assurance. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, because the one because the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. All right, let me finish then. Point four, Paul's final word, verses 25 through 28. Last few verses of 1 Thessalonians, which um, you're going to see are the perfect summary of everything that we've seen today. He's going to talk about how to treat each other in verses 25 and 6. He's going to talk about how to treat God in verse 27. And he's going to tell us what happens when we fail. Verse 28. Firstly, how to treat each other. Verses 25 and 26. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Now, what is a holy kiss? Can I just say, to be very clear, I think probably we want to look for the principle rather than the practice here. Um, I think there's a presumption here of a holy kiss. It's it's talking about being generous and open-handed in our greeting. In our context, uh, that probably means a handshake or a fist bump. Because I'm going to say at this point, I will feel a little bit awkward if you try to give me a holy kiss afterwards. I know that in saying that, all of you are going to try. Let's just settle for a handshake, okay? It's a description of how to treat each other openly and seeking to live in peace. But Paul also says how to treat God. Verse 27. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. That is, Paul is saying, listen to God, listen to his word. There is a presumption that every believer can sit under God's word. Which is why every week in church, we always have the Bible read. And my aim in preaching is to do my best to let the text speak for itself, to let God speak for himself. I suppose that means that one day after I leave, you'll remember what the Bible says, not any stories that I might have told. How to treat each other, how to treat God. Thirdly and finally, so what happens when we fail? Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, not the love of Christ be with you or the power of Christ or the wisdom of Christ or the glory of Christ. Those things are wonderful. But where Paul finishes is with a reminder that it is the grace of God alone that will sustain us. And so, as we finish this letter, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you have given him to atone for our sins and that you have granted us his spirit to make us more like Christ each day. We pray that you would strengthen us to love each other and to love you in the way in which you call us to. Above all, we thank you for your grace and mercy that for even in those times that we fail, still we know that you, our Father, love us as your children. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.